Thank you for listening to Bluebells Forever podcast. This is your host, Sherry Lewis. This bonus episode with Marianne Lamb is from the new series on Bluebells Forever Patreon called Bluebell Adjacent. These are dancers who did not work with Miss Bluebell or Don Arden directly or part of the Bluebell legacy, but worked in similar style shows. So this is their take on what it was like to be a professional dancer. These are on our Patreon page, and each month, if you become a patron, there is bonus content. So you can still listen to all the, the episodes on Spotify and iTunes for free, but these are extra bonus for our patrons who support the work of Bluebells Forever. Each month, there is a circle back interview where I go back and re-interview a guest I've had on previously to hear more of their story, to find out what they've been doing since, and just to go a little deeper. And now we have the new Bluebell Adjacent series. We also have a new a series called Showgirl in Training, where I interview one of my dancers who we are preparing to go to Paris in the spring and find out as many auditions that we can get her set up for and find out what it is like to audition and train and get ready to be in one of these shows. We also have something called Happy Hour with Anne and Sherry, which are short videos where we drink wine and wear showgirl hats and talk about our wonderful days on the stage. So if you're interested in this, it's very simple. You can go to www.patreon.com slash bluebellsforeverpod. And for $5 a month, you support the work. $10, you get extra bonus content. $20, $25, and $50. And this is so greatly appreciated to help us to continue to preserve these stories that are so needed to be told as this community expands decades and globally. So we want to keep telling these stories, preserving and archiving. So thank you for listening. Enjoy this episode with Mary Ann Lamb. So Zoom said recording in progress, and I want to like put my hands up. <laughs> so I have Mary and Lamb, a friend of mine. We've danced together, and she is my first one on the Bluebell Adjacent series, which is for the patrons. We met the other day, so happy, chit-chatting, so excited, and then started recording, but didn't put the audio on. So I had an hour plus of silence, and then the video was just me nodding at you. <laughs> <laughs> so Marianne's very gracious to come back on and and she's such a great storyteller even though the last one was amazing I know that this one will be similar but different and we'll have some surprises so thanks for taking the time to do this and we are now not across from each other in the studio but on zoom but you are maybe 15-20 miles away from me where mm-hmm. you grew up yeah can you just even start out by sharing why you're back here in Seattle and um why that yeah. connects to your whole dance world? Yeah, well, I'm back here um, for uh, several reasons. I mean, one reason I lived, um, I lived in, I moved to New York in 1978. And, and um, I just want to say this, that, but I have um, eight brothers and sisters. I mean, there's seven of us. So Seattle, I've always come back to. And my mom, of course, and dad lived here through my life. So Seattle, I always think of my home and, and um, so I try to get back a couple times a year, but this time I came back because I have a student, um, Marissa, who is fi- fighting um, some major health issues. And I decided to come back and Sherry, you're so sweet. And Kristen Cooper is so um, sweet to have me come. And I'm going to choreograph for 
um, Kirsten's um, um, youth company, but I'm, but you also are the best to give me the studio space and I'm going to do a workshop for her to try to raise some money for her, you know, as dancers support dancers. Mm. And um, I also came back to see my dance teacher and I have not seen her in many years because of COVID of course. And her name is Camille Chrysler and she has Alzheimer's right now. And I was just telling Sherry that um, she always was like this exotic bird and she honestly changed my life. I would not be who I am. I don't even know what would have happened to me because of um, I was dyslexic and Ill illiterate. I could not read for many, many years. And I was also hyperactive. I'm still very, very hyperactive. And she changed my life. She opened doors that I didn't even know there was doors. I mean, it's amazing mm -hmm. to think that I'm living in, you know, with eight brothers and sisters and this woman just exploded into my life. Cause if you know, Camille, she does explode into people's mm -hmm. life. I mean, and that she showed me a way of life that I didn't think existed. I didn't even know there was such thing as you could be a professional dancer. So and that was during the 70s, you know, I'm 62 right now. So it, it was, she was amazing. And when I went to visit her, I was saying that I went down to this, her residency. And for a minute, there was all these people there. And I couldn't, I was like, where is she? And I asked a nurse, but as soon as I asked, I heard someone singing a Broadway show tune. And I turned and I saw this uh, once again, the most beautiful, exquisite mm. dancer. Right. And and we, as you know, Sherry, <laughs> we don't know how old she is. <laughs> well, I wanted to talk about that, too, how we yes. connected, because the first the first time you and I met, I was going to Bermuda to do a Greg Thompson show. You were in Atlantic yes. stage in a Greg Thompson show. And they kind of arranged for our cast to stay with your cast to have that week to rehearse before we went to Bermuda. But also I got to see the show and blown away by you. Uh, and I, we're going to go into how you got into Greg Thompson and all that's amazing. And then we, I was back home in between gigs or something. And Camille was putting together this original show called dance wax and pulled this cast together. So for me to come in and go, that's Marianne lamb. Oh my gosh, she's in this. And then Kathleen Kelly and then Karen Schrader, who we have our whole yeah. connection with. Um, oh, that was such a fun cast, but that was original. And so to be a part of something that was being workshopped was fun. And I don't think you were home for very long. No, but I got to, to know you that way. And then Camille, because I opened Westlake Dance Center not long after that. I never knew how old she was. So she came and took my class and I had a backward somersault split roll or something as you do in the nineties. <laughs> and I said, Oh, or you can modify it. Look, thinking Camille would modify it. Oh, the no. ones that modified it were the 16 year olds <laughs> and, and Camille did a back split roll. And at that, that time I thought she was old. Yeah. But also young. She was so confusing because I can see her now yeah. where she's living as looking youthful and beautiful. But she also confused all of us of how, because she would dance. I remember her teaching me a triple inside. It was like almost like an reverse fuete that you would yeah. put your leg down and then keep spinning. Yeah. She, and I had to do it three times in this, in a row for that combo. And she would just go like, <laughs> like how, and yeah. she never wobbled. She would like, never. And I think she outdanced all of us. <laughs> Probably she, could. Yesterday she was amazing because she, you know, she said, I don't know how old I am. 
And I was like, I don't know either, you know, <laughs> and, and she is, and she goes in, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm mechanic now. I have two hip replacements, but then I'm sitting on the couch with her and she kicks her leg up and she's <laughs> like, it's like, do you, are you still dancing? And I kicked my leg up on, and, and we just laughed. And I'm like, wait, she just kicked her leg up and hit her face. Just like always, you know, wow. and she's suffering with um, Alzheimer's. So she has short-term memory loss, you know, and she kept on saying to me, um, cause I kept on saying, I, I came back from New York, you know, and she was like, New York's my home. I always just visit C um, Seattle. And I was like, really? oh, that's so true, you know, because she um, just for people that don't know, Camille Chrysler changed my life completely and changed so many of our lives. And she was wild. I mean, in Seattle, there is a, I think that we're very like because of the weather, we're very back, more conservative people. We're not like New Yorkers in New Jersey, Long mm -hmm. Island, and we're not like the South. Right. Yeah. And we're not like the Midwest. We are kind of a quite like almost like the Canadians and the British. We are a little bit I reserved, a bit more. Re yeah, I really believe that yeah. more, now that I've traveled more. I look at Anne Reinking, the, the most famous dancer in the world. She came from Seattle and there was always like an elegance, cons you know, to her. She wasn't like loud and crazy and, you know, and and and. Here was Camille Chrysler, like this wild, crazy bird. And she came from Spokane, Washington and trained in ballet and then went to New York. And she was one of the first dancers to dance. They used to have a ballet company. And I mentioned that um, yesterday to her. And she said, yeah, at Radio City Music Hall, the Rockettes would perform during the Christmas. And then this ballet company performed every spring and through the summer. And she said it, it was so painful because the stage was all cement. And she told, and this is the first time I've ever heard the story. And she said, they actually fought to have wooden floors put in. And she goes, it made such a difference because they realized then they could jump. Oh, oh and I realized, and I think it's so interesting because the Rockettes still are on cement. Real, you know, oh, they, that's the yeah. most bouncy, jumpy. Because, yeah, because of the, you know, the elevators and the sets, I think there's still a lot of cement on that stage. But, and it's interesting what she remembered. Yeah. But um, what, what happened to me is that I was born with a, eight brothers and sisters. And um, my mother was overwhelmed. And I was born with dyslexia and also hyperactive. And I have to say that at that time, they did not know what dyslexia was. I was, I, I think about my, my low self-esteem through my life. And I think so much of it had to do with, I was hiding that I could not read for so long, you know, and, and it, I, it made me shrink because I had such a powerful secret and being um, illiterate for so many years and trying to, uh, you know, hold that secret close. And then also what also made me small is that I think that at this time, and, you know, I'm 62, that they did not know such thing as dyslexia and they did not know such thing as hyperactive. So in a way, my mother who was so overwhelmed just thought of me as simple-minded. Um, and so, 
through my career, through my young childhood, I kind of shrunk. Mm-hmm. And I, I would always feign sickness. I was that girl who was always pretending that I was sick through my entire, because I just was trying to skip school constantly and crying and, and nervous all the time and couldn't read. And by the time I was, I don't know what grade I was in. I, um, I would say I was seven years old when I was feigning sickness and had a, I had a, um, I used to always lay on the couch with blankets and pretend that I was, had a stomach ache with a hot water bottle because I just didn't want to go to school. And I watched this amazing black and white film, um, Summer Stock. And I always talk about this because I always thought it was interesting that I did not want to be Jean, uh, um, Judy Garland. I wanted to be Gene Kelly. And I think Gene, watching Gene Kelly dance and how athletic he was and how energetic he was, he, in that show, he was tapping on this, you know, the boards and putting up a barn and putting a show together. I, at seven years old, said, that's what I'm going to do. So at seven years old, I started dressing like Gene Kelly, dancing like Gene Kelly, begging to go to dance class. And my mother took me and my little sister to dance class. And I had to, I had to go, to, I, this, I went into the basement of this church and started tap dancing. And I was a terrible tap dancer. I just have to tell you right now, I'm a terrible tap dancer. <laughs> right now I can just, <laughs> I don't I don't know if it's my mind it's, I don't know if it's based on reading and math but I I'm a horrible tap dancer but I quit because during my recital I went up and I just made up stuff and the audience laughed at me and I was devastated and I went small again you know can you tell wasn't it a nun that that yes suggested that you get to yeah. ballet Yeah. When I, so my, again, we moved, we're always moving and we ended up moving to Mercer Island. And, and by this time I have now moved to two different schools before then, because we moved so much. And I, because my dad wanted to be a doctor, went to, um, as a young man, as a medic on Normandy beach, survived, which was Mm -hmm. very rare came back and was so damaged. He didn't want to be a doctor anymore. And he went into the real estate business. So through my, and drank and started drinking. And my mother always said he came back a different man. He was never the man she married. And which was sad, you know, very sad. And I think that happened to so many people. So um, I, when I was on Mercer Island, I did again, constantly, shrinking and shrinking and shrinking and I think I was like in the sixth grade or something when this old nun contacted my mother and told my mother that she thought that I she wrote a letter that I was slowly so closed up and that I they thought of I don't know why but one reason why I always use the word simple-minded because that was in the letter that this nun thought that if I could maybe possibly take ballet. And they knew that Camille had a dance studio on Mercer Island. So she, this old nun contacted um, Camille and asked if I could clean the studio because we did not, we could not afford dance classes. And my mother agreed when Camille said, yes, I will take this young girl. And I went into those dance classes and I was hyperactive and I didn't know my right or my left at all. I was totally dyslexic. And it was amazing because 
Camille was so wild and she had these beautiful, her husband was a photographer, Ray, and he had these incredible pictures of dancers all over the studio. Remember these? And uh -huh. there's a picture of her, like gorgeous ballet shots on point in tutus down at the ocean, you know, out in the water on point. I mean, they were incredible. And, and she was, when Camille walked into a room, she took over the room. She was, she was just wild. She would flirt with everybody. And she was, she was like this exotic New Yorker now, you know, mm. and she used to throw these wild parties, Christmas parties that we would all go to. And all these artists from um, Seattle would come and there would be gay men and all these wild people. And, and she would throw these Christmas parties and we would all drink. We were so young, you know, I was so young. And during this time, I would take the bus to classes. And what was amazing, and I have to say what changed my life is that with ballet, I didn't have to know my right or my left. And I didn't realize this until years later, but in ballet, you start with your left hand on the bar and you work your, your right side. And then you turn and you work your other side and then you come out and, and it wasn't about right or left. It was about looking in the mirror and just copying. And what wow. was really interesting during that time, I felt free. I started mm -hmm. to feel like I was somebody. And instead of shrinking, I started to stretch in, in my world. And because two things were gifts, being dyslexic was a gift and being hyperactive because Camille demanded me to hold that energy in, which gave me a lot of power. And I became an even dancer because I never knew while I was dancing, if I was turning right or left, I would just turn. I became very even. I could turn the same amount on one side as the other side. I could kick evenly. And I remember a choreographer later saying, Marion, you're very even. And I always thought, yeah, I am, because I didn't, I never know my right or my left. So that was a gift instead of a disability. Well, even knowing what you do later on in life of being a Fosse, yeah. like, I love how you say you, you're not a Fosse dancer. You are yeah. a, all dancer, like, but you yeah. had a period in time of Fosse, which that's a, a, when to get that containment, that's powerful because either people, a lot of dancers go big and it all shoots all over the room or small and it like how you said you started your life small and contained and that doesn't get out. So yeah. just, that also makes your story now that I picture you dancing that particular style, like, Oh yeah, that's a, that's a contained energy, but it's not yeah. diminished. And Gwen, I was, I never worked with Bob Fosse. Um, when I first got into New York, I, um, my first Broadway show was song and dance. And um, I went from song and dance to starlight express and what was amazing is that I, like you, from Seattle, Washington, we all knew Anne Ryan King. Anne Ryan King is 10 years older than myself. And I, Camille Chrysler, who introduced me to this amazing world, right, um, said when I was 15 years old that I wasn't going to be a ballet dancer. That And that crushed me because I think every dancer, we start off and our dream is to be a ballet yeah. dancer. And she knew that I had way too much energy and I did not have the proper turnout and I didn't have the proper feel for ballet. Like 
Kathleen Kelly did. Oh, yeah. you know, she was the ballerina. She was born to dance ballet, you know, and she was in my class. So our Judy, you know, I look at them and they were the ballet dancers that I wanted to be like, you know. So um, when I was in New York and um, I was driven to go there because at 18, Camille brought me to New York City. And I, my first show I ever saw was dancing. And I saw Anne Ryan King on stage doing Bob Fosse's mm -hmm. dance. And it blew my mind knowing that for years in every dance studio in Seattle, there was a picture of her laid out in that famous shot yes. of the dancing poster. And also all that jazz was out. And that movie, she was phenomenal. And so she was a major star at this time, major, major star. And um, one thing that Camille did also, which is very rare, and you know this, Sherry, because you own a dance studio, and your dance studio is for professional dancers, really. And so it's a little bit, you're more like steps in Broadway dance. But a lot of dance studios are very competitive with each other unlike your studio. And Camille was not like that. Camille was a professional working dancer. And she knew if you were gonna work in this business, you had to pick up every style there was. Mm -hmm. So at a certain age, she pushed us all out of the comfortable little dance studio. She wanted it, we came back. You know, I mean, I still took, but she was like, you need to go take from Gwen um, Barker. And that was Anne Ryan King's um, teacher. And you need to go to, you know, Pacific Northwest Ballet, which I'm going to see tonight. I'm so excited. <gasps> Yay! Yay! <laughs> but you, know, you need to, you know, meet those people. And so, and so she, she made us who were so scared and so comfortable in her little studio go out in the world a little bit, you know. And she, I didn't even know what Broadway was in Seattle, Washington. You did two things in Seattle, Washington. You became a ballet dancer or you went to LA. You are, you know, and if you're yeah. lucky, you would even go like what you and I did. We got introduced and ended up in Vegas. But even Vegas was exotic to us. But New well, York was way exotic. Well, let's yeah. talk about that because even when we did, when we met up the other day to do the recording, that didn't happen. <laughs> how how a lot of people know you from your Broadway days when you come and do all these workshops. I don't know how many people know you as your production, floor show, cabaret, showgirl days. And there was a reason and a reason that resonates with a lot of us is either we didn't know how to explain what we did or it didn't, we didn't think it looked good on our resume or ballet come ballet dancers I've talked to said it kind of got poo-pooed on that if you go to Vegas, you're a sellout ballet or Broadway it's like oh nobody does Vegas so I think this is a sad thing that a lot of us have this beautiful part of our dance story that doesn't get told yes so and that's because of Bluebell oh, that's what we're doing on this podcast is these stories right. are being celebrated and all these amazing women that stepped out of their dance studio that stepped out of their country for a lot of them and, and pursued something that a lot of people didn't have encouragement to do so Camille's in this part of your story too right of how you and yeah work can you tell about that that and also well, how old you actually were <laughs> yes well what happened was when she told I mean there's there are a couple things that happened and I'll tell them fast one thing when I trap when I move so much um it's hard to make friends you, you know people yeah. think that you move all over the country it's hard to make friends but 
it's it doesn't matter. It's hard when you move from school to school to school to make friends. And thank God for the dance studio because the dance studio became my tribe. I became friends with people that were in all different schools. So it yeah. gave me confidence. So when I was in a school and I was not popular, I didn't care because every I lived in my dance studio every day after school. And I know you did too. I mean, we mm. would dance three to four hours a night after school. So when I moved to Newport High School, which was a very, you know, uppity from Mercer Island to Newport, um, I decided to audition for, for the first time, the cheerleading dance team, you know, and by this time I was an amazing dancer. I mean, I, I had trained, I lived in Camille's dance studio. I could turn, I could kick, I could even do like walkovers and things, which, you know, later on I pretended I didn't because I didn't want to do it eight shows a week, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so I, um, I decided to audition and I kicked ass in that audition at high school and I was cut right away because only the popular girls got in and I was walking distance. And I remember walking home, just crying, crying, crying. And, you know, I had four older brothers. So by the time I got home and I was crying, one of the brothers was probably, you know, eating in the refrigerator like they all did. You know, and they were like, why are you crying? And I'm like, I got cut. They said, who cares about high school? And they, and then the other brother was like, go down. And they're looking for cheerleaders for um, the Seattle Seahawks. And I remember Camille Chrysler saying that she just got a job and she's going to choreograph for the Seattle Seagulls, the first cheerleaders. But, you know, she didn't ask me because I was only 15. And I decided, and I called her up and I, or I went to class and I said, can I audition? And she said, and I, I told her this yesterday and she remember, she would laugh. She said, you, well, you better go out and get a padded bra and some go-go boots. <laughs> and so I went at, and I got it. And I was like 15 years old and I got the Seattle Seagull. So I got the jacket. I went back to school as a professional <laughs> Yeah, I and, love that. Um, like, yeah, I'll have cheerleaders that cut me. <laughs> yeah. And I but I do remember, too, the confidence I got. That was the first time I was like, wow, I I can be more than just a ballet dancer because the ballet thing slayed me that I wasn't going to be a ballet dancer. And that gave me the confidence when the Greg Thompson's Follies, which you and I worked for, came into the um, Seattle and Greg Thompson had rented um, uh, the music hall, which was this incredible, gorgeous music Beautiful. hall. And we put, and he put up a big folly show there. And I auditioned. Camille sent us down there to audition for Joe Emery. And Joe Emery, you and I talked about her. Uh, she mm. had a dance company, a kind of a jazz modern dance company in, in Tacoma, Washington. And she was a wonderful sexy mm -hmm. talented choreographer I mean she had kind of you and I were kind of talking about this she had like a mix between I would say Ronnie Lewis mm -hmm. and Jack Cole Fawcett you know but you know and then also a little bit of contemporary in her too very balletic mm -hmm. contemporary and she was the choreographer and I got the show when I auditioned did and you have to put a resume or did you have to fill out any paperwork that said how old you were? I Back then not. was different. 
yeah, it was different back then. You would, you know, I didn't even have a picture or a resume. And I just remember this, that was so, I was so angry is that we had to wait in line and then we had to walk down a staircase and then he would cut us. And I was like, I am a trained dancer. You're having me walk down a staircase. <laughs> you know, deep down inside, I was thinking this. And then I realized how hard it was. They taught us how to walk down a staircase without looking down, you know, where yep. you feel the back of your calf and how I could barely walk down a staircase. I'll never forget that. <laughs> and thank goodness I wasn't cut then. And what they did, he designed the Folly shows, Greg Thompson Follies, after the the Follies. So there were the showgirls, the singers, and the ponies. And uh, ponies were under five, six, and I was a pony. And so I, I, I got um, to go to the next section and I ended up getting the show. And I lied because you had to be 18. And I think I was almost 17. I was 16 going on 17, you know, that kind of age. And I just flat out lied and said I was 18. And so I got the show while I was in high school. So I, and I remember one of the English teachers told my mother and she was trying to flunk me. And she was totally called us in and said, how dare you have your daughter dance in that slutty show? You're destroying her. Yeah, it was terrible. And she was oh trying to, God. she was trying to flunk me. And she, and if she flunked me, I would have not graduated. And my mother came with me and was like, no, she wants to be a dancer. She's very proud. And my mother stood up for me and I ended up getting like a C instead of a D and I passed, but it was a really interesting thing. And I was telling you that I moved out of my house and moved in with Russell Miller, who was a beautiful gay dancer. And my mother and dad are very Catholic and did not talk to me for like three months because they were so nervous about me moving in with a boy. And then I moved from there into the Olive Tower, which I saw yesterday. It's still standing. <sighs> that right? was right across and, from the music hall. Yeah. And I would walk to work and then I would go to school and high school. And I remember I would go dancing like on Friday nights or Saturday nights after the show and gay clubs. And I, I told you this, I saw my English teacher once and I remember seeing him and hiding and was so scared because we locked eyes and I was so <laughs> scared he was going to get me in trouble. And instead I realized he was so scared because yeah. back then he hid that he was gay. Cause this is in the seventies where you're not openly gay as you know, and I never forgot that. I think years later that how naive I was, you know, but so to make a long story short, <laughs> I, out of the deal I made for my mother was that I would graduate if I took the Follies and I would also go to my prom because she thought those were very important things. I didn't really care about either of them. I just yeah. wanted to dance. So prom came and it was, and I had to ask for the night off and it was, so, we didn't have understudies. Yeah. So I was really scared and I went to, to Greg's office and said, I need to talk to you. And I sat down and I confessed to him that I was not 18 and that I needed to, to leave the show right away after the, the, the show. Cause I had to go to my prom and he was like, what? And he was like in shock. 
that I was not 18. He was like, he was kind of mad. He was like, you know, I could be sued. I could be in trouble for this. This is like child labor. And then I started like almost crying. And he was like, do you have a date? And I was like, no, I don't have a date. Do you have a dress? No. And he goes, okay. He backed off and he said, you can take the guys and let them wear the white tuxes and the finale. So I took four gay men and two straight men with me. There were six of them. And he, and, and he goes, and then use the understudy um, gold lame dress that Julie's, Julie Miller was the star at the time that she did not end up wearing. And you can take the, okay. And then he was like, yeah, and you can take the limousine because we had a limousine back then. And so after the show, we all jumped into this limousine and we all went to my prom and all night long, all these gorgeous gay dancers and men dance with everybody's date. <laughs> and I was in a gold dress, and we danced all night long and it was so fun. It really was fun. But that was it's a crazy story. It's a scene from a movie when you get cut from the cheerleading team and then you come back at the end of the year in a limousine yeah. in a gold lame dress with the most handsome men who would probably could outdance any of those cheerleaders Everybody. that did make the team. It's just beautiful justice. And it's also so fun. It's just such a show girl, show person's dream. Yeah. It, you know, that's a scene that you'd have to make up, but no, you actually lived that. Yeah. So and when I remember I, wearing G strings, you know, we talked about topless. I want you to talk about it more about how women felt shy about their careers. Um, I definitely hid my career being a girl um, and being in the Follies from my Broadway career for many, many years. I never told anybody, but I'm going to say something. I would have not made a Broadway show if I did not become a Folly showgirl. Because with the Follies, I learned to perform. I learned to break the fourth wall. I learned to pull myself through the choreography. And I learned to, to have a relationship with the audience. Because you learn that when you're dancing um, nightclub work. And you learn the discipline. You learn to go in there and, and um, the discipline of doing, we did um, two shows a, night, a day, you know, and we learned the responsibility of working hard and keeping ourselves in shape. The bad thing is, this is, I was, I, I thought about after our interview, Sherry, and I want you to jump in and me not just to talk, talk, talk. But I was thinking about what you said about the women, like, I, because I was a pony, they called ponies. I, under five, six, we did not go topless. And some showgirls and Greg Thompson's, it depends on what city were topless and some weren't topless. And Seattle didn't allow topless. So they were covered, but in Vegas, they were topless. And I think that one of the sad things that, about our society and in the world is that women are, are only in two categories. And I thought of this when I was driving, when I left you, either we're considered sluts are we considered virgins? Mm -hmm. I feel like there's nothing in between. And when you look at a man and he's all jacked up and has no shirt on, we don't look at him and think, is he a slut or is he a virgin? We don't put men in categories like that. But our society really puts women in categories. Either you're the good girl or the bad girl, period. 
And being a showgirl, and to me, 99% of the showgirls were amazing ballet dancers and amazing trained dancers that were too tall to be in dance companies at that time. Because a tall woman on point gives you another four inches. Mm -hmm. So they're over six feet tall. And our jobs in this business are to, to create fantasy. And when you look at like tonight, I'm going to the Pacific Northwest Ballet. Those ballet dancers will be, have been trained to not look like humans. They're trained for us to watch these amazing you know, creatures on stage. So we go into our imaginations and we live in this magical world. To me, the same thing is Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. Those lead showgirls coming down with those jewels and that those costumes and, and topless with their feminine energy is not that they're sluts and they're not talented. It's that they are bringing us into this amazing magical world that, that the directors and choreographers have designed for entertainment to break the fourth wall that we look at these creatures and which sad is how we were stereotyped and that we believe that that we were bad because we wore g-strings we were bad because we we're topless we were not talented we did not get to embrace our feminine feminine power on stage that's yeah that's where i would love to chime in because that's a lot has been retroactively healing around my story without it being topless that I would love to go back and tell myself that you are gorgeous. And this is pure my story. When I auditioned for Miss Bluebell, per, you know, she was still auditioning people back then, 300 people on the stage. I was one of the six that they kept to go to hello, Hollywood. Hello. So even the, that you make it, you still doesn't, it doesn't hit you that like, that's really special. You were picked, yeah. but you were just like, then, then we had to drop our tops from Miss Bluebell and she did it so respectfully. But then I had to tell my right. parents, that I was going to be topless. Yeah. Well, my, my mom hung up on me. She said, no man would marry me. My dad said I wasn't his daughter anymore. That's anyway. So I was going to tell Miss Bluebell, I couldn't do the show. And I cried the whole way there. And I'm like, my parents won't talk to me. Um, I'm going to go to hell. Cause I was very conservative Baptist. I was going to go to hell. Yeah. And remember Miss Bluebell hugging me in her hotel room. Cause this was to sign my contract and just saying, these are good girls. These are talented yeah. girls. Many of them are married. Many of them are Christian. Many of them leave this kind of life. She said, I want you to choose what you want, not what your parents want. Right. And so that was a huge turnaround, but I think I didn't fully embrace it until after I was done doing these shows of how beautiful, because I talked to you and I don't know if you want to share a little bit of your story about sexual assault and how yeah. women are either like, you always are on guard and your body is dangerous and it's going to cause men to sin, or it's going to be assaulted or gawked at, but yeah. we would do these shows and nobody looked at us sexually I mean I'm sure there's guys that I heard that came to the show because they want to see the boobs and then they forget that and they go oh my gosh oh yeah but you would go out afterwards and be leered at and grabbed at a bar at a grocery store but never on the stage there was something that there was this regalness that made it not feel slut or virgin what other people saw and then whatever garbage we brought in from how we grew up or we were told right you know, it's sexual assault that, that you're, you're bad if you do this. And yeah, there was, there was a lot that was already honest that we were tr 
probably working out for some healing on stage. And a lot of it didn't happen till we were done with the shows. And part of me wants to go back and just celebrate. Right. That and part I think of myself. That people, I think people don't realize too, that to train to be a dancer takes years and years and years and hours and hours and hours and hours. So what, and it is a silent p- performing career. You're not using your voice as a dancer. You know, of course, on Broadway, you end up using your voice, but you most times, most ballet dancers, biggest showgirls, we don't speak on stage. And so, so we're very innocent. After school, you know, we're in dance studios for four hours a day, every day except Sunday in rehearsals. We live a very, um, quiet kind of naive life in some ways and then we get go out in the world and the workforce and we don't have social skills like the girls that were in high school and like partied with guys on because we never partied we Mm. were always training so we are we have naivety also dancers tend to be and also that's why we're called show kids right we're always told what to do. I don't, I feel honestly, cause I had a, just like you, I had a huge performance career and it, and I don't feel like I really grew up until I stopped doing eight shows a week because I was always told what to do. I was always, um, my days were always full. You know, I couldn't go out and drink every night at 11 o'clock at night. I had a a kind of a naive lifestyle, but emotionally I didn't grow up. And I think that that really played with my sexual assault because I'm in, I'm, I, I begin to trust the men that are in my dance studio because 95% of them are gay and the other 5% that are straight are just like me. They've been training their whole lives, you know, as dancers. So they're not like, you know, over-sexualizing women. So that there's, and also as a dance partner, you get physical with a man very fast. You can go into an audition and get physical with a man very fast because you're going to partner with them physically and you got to put your life in his hands. Mm. So there's an intimacy right away without even knowing their names. So when I was a Seahawk, see gal I was in high school so I never I never went to the parties and then one I always I told you this already but we used to because this was you know the 70s I used to look at the Sears catalog and that's how I did my clothes shopping and I remember saving every penny I had to buy this beautiful coat these powder blue pants these cork shoes and this fluffy top that I was going to wear to my Seahawk seagull party with um of the football players because back then you used to party with the football players you cannot do that now they have a lot of restrictions and I was you know I lied they didn't know I was you know 15 16 years old so I went to this party out in Bellevue and one of the traveling football players that are from out of town young guy said hey will you come with me to find a 7-eleven I'm gonna buy beer and I was like yeah Absolutely. Now, a dancer always believes that we could kick anybody's ass too, because we know our bodies, we feel 
physical power when we dance. So we believe that we are super people. You know, I still believe I could kick anybody's ass, you know, <laughs> and I got in the car with him and I showed him the 7-Eleven and we, he ran in and got beer. And then on the drive back, he did not go the way that I told him. And he pulled off on a dark road and he sexually assaulted me and he tore my brand new coat and my brand new shirt and the butt. I just remember seeing the buttons on the floor of the, um, of the car. And I had never been with a man before and I went into shock. And then of course he drove to the party and he said, if you ever tell anyone, you know, I'll, I'll deny it. And he just got out of the car and left me in his car. And I slowly got out and I got into my car and I drove to a Denny's and I sat there and cried. I remember the Denny's waitress saying, can I help you? Cause she could tell that something horrible had happened. I'm sure my makeup was a disaster. My clothes were ripped. And I just sat there and I said, no. And I sat there for several hours and then I went home and I never told anyone ever. Cause no. I blame myself that I put myself in that situation. And I think that, you know, I just squished that memory. And I think that women, you know, in this business, most of us had those stories, some kind of story like that. Yeah. Dancers had that story because we thought that we were able to fight people off. We think that, you know, we're powerful. And I have to say that, you know, I went and we go on the road very young. We're very young and naive when we go on the road. You know, we're not, we're not who we're on stage. We're not those women that we portray on stage. So it's, it, it was a, it was a challenging time for me. And then I'm going to tell you this real quick. Camille always said that she, that I had to go to New York. She, that was her dream. She believed that I should be there. So at 18 years old, she didn't want me to just stay in the Follies. So she, at 18, she did bring me to New York city. And I always tell people this, I did not last long in that city. I did not have the thick enough skin to be in 1978 in that city. That city was, was new. So it was just too overwhelming. Because people think I went to New York and I got a Broadway show. And no, I went to New York and I starved and I could not figure things out. I did kooky things like talking about a picture and resume. I went into the phone book because someone said I had to get a picture, a resume picture. I went in the phone book. I made an appointment with the first um, photo photographer I saw in the book. I went and, and, and they were like, are you sure? And I'm like, yes, yes, yes. This is what I need. You know, and they were like, okay, I walked into that office for my photo shoot and it was National Geographic, the guy that photographed inside people's bodies, like molecules. Oh. It was like a net. And I was so embarrassed. I said, I have to leave. I have to leave. I'm so embarrassed. I didn't know what I was doing. And the guy laughed. He thought it was the funniest thing. And he had his assistant shoot me and make an appointment at his apartment and the assistant was so poor. He didn't have a mirror on the, in the bathroom. I used his toaster to put my makeup on. <laughs> oh my but you know, I was, that's how naive I was, I was, yeah. you know, naive. And then I, I went mean, back to the Follies. And then I want to hear all I this. Went, I went, I went, I was in New York in between shows. I think coming back from 
I was very naive that I looked in the paper in New York and saw an audition. I went to someone's apartment yeah, for an audition. I'm like, all the things, all the ways I could have died. I'm just that naivete and and that we're still here to tell the stories, but there's things I did now. And I'm like, if my daughter told me she did that, it'd be, but I think in the seventies, no one was really looking out for us. And so you just like, Oh, okay. I'll go to your apartment. Some strange person. I don't know, but nobody knows I'm here. I know. Yeah. Anyway. So I want to go back to the follies because you got to do a lot of traveling and the shows you got to do different shows, great. You know, always mixed up what the theme was. So you got a lot of experience and travel. I did. So coming back um, to it, did you leave like I'm done with these shows or did you go, I'm going to try New York, well, but I maybe come back? York, when I left New York, I felt like a complete failure. I mean, the, it was devastating. And Greg told me, I, I'm going to come back. He goes, yeah, you're not talented enough for New York. I'll never forget that. I mean, he probably denies it right now. If, if I asked him, he, he would say, I never, I always believed in your talent, but he did say, he said, or he might've said, you're not talented enough yet. I don't know. I took that into the, my yeah. head, my mm-hmm. psyche, and that's what I ran with. Yeah. And I fell in love when I came back with uh, David, who was in the show. And I thought I need to train. I need to get, my, uh, maybe I am not ready. I don't know. So I ended up, it was amazing. I went to Monte Carlo and Bermuda. And I think I saw you in Bermuda and you were incredible and stunning and gorgeous. I think you were, you were at the Southampton and I Mm -hmm. was, and I was at the Hamilton princess, which is a smaller lounge. Yeah. And, um, and I, I did the playboy club circuit because back then the, and that's how I ended up back in New York. The, um, the Playboy Club circuit had L.A. and had Dallas and had Great Gorge and Wisconsin. And and it ended in um, the Playboy Club in New York. And I went with there was five of us with Follies on Broadway and Joe Riley, who was my very best friend, was in that show. And he was my first partner when I was 16 with the with the Follies in New York. And all these men became my very dear friends from Russell Miller to Earl to David, you know, and all these people. And what was sad is that we lost all, all of them except Russell Miller to AIDS. You know, of course the straight mm-hmm. men did, we didn't lose, but I, I lost my best friend and, and, but I moved to New York with, with my best friend and we did that show together. And um, that got me back into New York and back into training in New York and back, you know, back going and saying, listen, I'm going to go for this again, was being back in the fall. The very first show that Joe and I did to try to make money is that we choreographed a lounge show, a midnight show at the Latin Quarter. There was a show at eight o'clock show. And then we did a, like a late show and it was very Vegasy. Like I told you, this was so silly. We did burning down the house with plastic raincoats with cheese strings <laughs> and bras and rubber hoses. You know, it was just ridiculous <laughs> like that. And, um, and then I got my first big break in New York and I did Radio City Music Hall and it was Return to Oz. And it was kind of like Fantasia. And then they showed the movie of Return to Oz. And I remember I had a big head and I wore the Chip and Dale head. I had the black nose and my girlfriend had the brown nose and I did that. And then this is my story. I always tell my students that 
you cannot get a job. It's not. And also this, like, you know, there's no cell phones. There's no computers at this time. Everything's a hustle. You had to run behind broken telephones to to try to, with a quarter waiting in line to check your service to see if you get a call back. Everything. If you got a, a call, you would have to run down to the drama bookstore and then run over to, you know, Coliseum and get your music. I mean, everything was a hustle then. It took a lot of energy to go to one audition. Yeah. And, and I just, I, I remember seeing cats and seeing Cynthia Rubio in the white, being the white cat and thinking, I want to do the white cat on, in, on Broadway more than anything I've ever wanted to do in my life. And I would audition and I would get cut and I, and they always did a section of the ball, the 17 minute ball and I'd get cut and I would go in and I'd get cut. And, and after about a dozen times, I'm not joking. I woke up and they had another call and I was like, am I really going to go and get cut again? I mean, am I just pathetic? But I got up and I, I, I thought I'm going to do it again. And because I knew the choreography by this time. So I go there and there was a brilliant man named T. Michael Reed. He was the dance supervisor for Chorus Line and for Cats. He also died of AIDS, which was very upsetting. But I started crying. You know, and back then you used to audition at the theater. You would wait in line for four or five hours. You get your quick little shot. You would turn. He did the, the Michael Bennett audition. You know, these choreographers all had way to audition, like Bob Fosse did T for two, Bennett did, um, you would slate your name, where you're from, double pirouette, land, and then he would cut you or not. And, and then I would dance. And he, he had told me to come over. And by this time I was already crying. So I already, I was crying to the combination. I knew I was going to be cut again. And he said, you will never do the white cat because you cannot sing it. You cannot sing Marianne Lamb. And I could not sing. And so he said, go down to 890 Studios. They're doing the show called Song and Dance during Bernadette Peters. The first act is song. The second act is dance and learn to sing when you, if you get this job. <laughs> I go down there and I get the job. And it was so interesting because Cynthia Rubia and everyone in that show is still one of my best friends. Charlotte Dubois, um, Denise Faye, Valerie Wright. You know, um, Marilyn Stewart, all uh, Scott Wise, you know, all these people are still like Ken Art, all of them, all of them are still my best, like very close friends of mine. And um, and Cynthia Rubia, who was the white cat, I'm understudying her, and she was the dance captain, and she said, I will train you to be a Broadway dancer. Because by that time I was very Vegasy, you know, I'd pop my head and we learned to break the fourth wall and she was the one that said, I got to hold in all that energy because she had done dancing. She knew you had to pull in all that energy and that find that, that strong energy in the inside out, not the outside in. And she, and so the rest was history that I ended up going from that show to the next show. The sad thing was my goal was always to follow Anne Ryan King's steps and work with Bob Fosse. He died in my second show. I never got to meet him. I never got to, you know, dance with him. He died when I was doing Starlight Express. 
But the great thing was years and years later, I was in a big hit with Nathan Lane. A funny thing happened on the way to the forum. And they had a concert version at the Encores of Chicago because Encores in New York used to only do flops. Chicago was a flop in 1975. It lost everything to um, Chorus Line. I always think Chicago was way ahead of its time. Mm -hmm. And so um, they did it and it moved to Broadway. The young actress that played June in the concert version was doing a play on Broadway. So she left and that's um, Lisa Laguilu, who is the, the director, associate director to Wicked now. And I replaced her and I left a big hit Broadway show to do a three month version, only a three month contract of a concert version of Chicago. But I was dying to do Fosse and work with Anna Reinking. And I got that. And then when we opened that show, it was a big success. And they moved that show to um, uh, the Schubert Theater and the rest is history. It's still running today, 25 years later. But that was the first time I got to work with Anne Ryan King. And then I worked four times after that with her. So Anne Ryan King and Gwen Verdon were my Bob Fosse. You got and to that, work directly with Gwen Verdon. That's amazing. Yes, I did. And I got to, she got to coach me on, um, Irby Fitch, which was from Redhead. It didn't end up in the Folly, the Fosse show, but I got to be in the room with her for about three, two months, just her and I doing this. And I, I'll never forget it. It was like, I just cherished every moment of her. She was, she was just genius. And you know what was great about her? She was only about the work. She was about the work. She never attacked you personally. It was just the work. And she was serious and she was brilliant. And I think I told you this. I have never seen a dancer in my life that can dance like Gwen Verdon, ever. Mm. And if you don't, I don't think there's a better jazz dancer that walks the earth than her ever. And if you go, if you look at Two Lost Souls, the movie of Damn Yankees, you would agree with me. Her in that black dress, you don't even know how she's dancing it. And back then they didn't do like, like you're saying, when we talked about Moulin Rouge, all those cuts, it, she is, it's one cut and she is killing it. She was, no one was like her. Brilliant. And you were, you were in the Verdon, Fosse Verdon, I don't want to say mini, it's not what they call it, the docu-series yeah. or you yeah, were the, in that. Yeah, the FX series. Yeah. I, um, I, for many years, about 10 years, there's a brilliant actress and a brilliant director, choreographer, writer. I mean, this woman breaks all boundaries named Suzanne Meisner. Now we call her Suze or Suze Meisner, but she has done like over 50 um, television shows and movies. And she's a, an amazing actress, but I met her dancing on Broadway and they called her the Julia Prowse of Broadway. Like she's brilliant. And I was her assistant for about 10 years before she wrote a project called The Shape She Makes. And I assisted her and we are very good friends. And Andy Blakenbuehler brought me in to work with Sam Rockwell to teach him how to dance. Well, he was a brilliant dancer. He didn't really need to be, but just to keep him in shape. I mean, he's just brilliant. And, um, and they kept me on. And 
why we, we were working in, on the first episode and second episode, Andy got um, the movie Cats. So he left and they hired Susie. And I ended up doing the whole series as her associate. And what was cool about that is that Nicole Fossey, um, Gwen and Bob's daughter, wanted only people that were in the um, room with Bob Fossey to set the pieces. And I thought that was mm. so cool. So all these dancers that like Pamela Sousa and, and Lloyd and Dana Moore and um, Valerie Pettiford, they set the Fossey numbers. And then I was kind of brought in as a dance captain to, to train and make sure things were clean. And then Su as Susie would, would do all almost like a film director designed this a lot of the shots with the director um and the director of the team was the hamilton team so you had this brilliant brilliant mm -hmm. four men that were just geniuses with the team and it was an amazing experience it really was it was a gift for me and i because of that gift i am now part of the fossey burden legacy so i'm allowed to work work with some of his pieces so that's been a magic oh, moment for me. Amazing. And you were in the movie Chicago, which yes, I just thought we would talk about the Milan movies, how things dance. I can't talk dance movies get so chopped up. The choreography is never even a full eight count or you're coming at it sideways. Like as a dancer, I go, please let me just see two eight counts without an edit. Yeah. And that's, I thought the brilliance of um, Chicago was you got to see dance as the story, not just as like distraction or something. It just feels like dance is always, so chopped up and, and I loved Chicago of how the story was the dance and how brilliant I, he is as a, a director so what was that like working on that oh, film? Rob, Rob it was in, I have to say I'm gonna Rob Marshall who's now you know he's I think his, his new movie musical that's coming out is Little Mermaid um Rob Marshall's a genius he was a genius on Broadway he his um John, his his partner and husband is a genius. They work as a team together. And Rob Marshall was the dance captain and the associate to the rink under Bob Fosse. And also he was associate with, with who's one of the best choreographers and directors of our time, Graziella Danielle. And right now down in San Diego, they're doing the story of Graziella Danielle's life. She's like a brilliant and so he's from the Fosse world. He really understands the movement. And he worked under two geniuses, Bob Fosse and Graziella Danielle. And he, he's just the most amazing man to work with. And what happened was I did funny thing happen in the way to forum with him. I played vibrata. And he actually directed with Anne Reinking um, Chicago in San Diego. And it was it was B.B. Newworth and Juliet Prowse and a lot of the, the original company of the revival of Chicago. So when they did it, Annie, Rob was doing a funny thing happened in the way the forum. And he he gave it to his friend, Walter Bobby, who was the artistic director of the encores to put um, Chicago up for just that encores. So, and and so he also really knew um, Chicago. He really understood that, loved that piece. 
And Bob Fosse could never figure out how to put that into film because it's a fantasy musical. It, mm-hmm. it, it's her imagination. Mm-hmm. And if you look at like Chicago, um, it's very different than, it's almost like a Fellini film. You know, Fellini went into yeah. reality and fantasy. And if you look at Cabaret, all the dance numbers are real. They're doing yeah. a show, right? And most musicals at that time kind of had that feeling of reality, not Chicago. So Rob Marshall was really, he had figured out that if he filmed into that eyeball, then you could go into Roxy's mind and the fantasy would come out. So I thought that was why he thought I figured out how to film Chicago. Isn't that amazing? So he is a young, brilliant genius. But I want to tell you a story that people don't talk about much. I had finally got to work with Susan Stroman. I was so excited. I replaced a very dear friend of mine, Nina Golden, in contact. And I was Mm. thrilled. They gave me an amazing amount of money. I was going to understudy Charlotte Dumbois and Karen Zamba's role. I thought I was going to live. And I love the show. I love dancing the show so much. I can't even tell you. I loved her work. I loved the show. And three months into it, Rob Marshall was doing Chicago, the movie. And I was like, I wanted to do a Chicago movie musical more than anything. The last time I did a movie was Portrait of a Showgirl in 1981. Now this is 1986, 1986, um, 96 or um, no 2000, because it was right before the the 9-11. So I auditioned for the Chicago movie and I was newly just signed a contract and just got into contact. And in the equity rules, if you leave, you have to buy yourself out of your contract. Because I had signed a year contract because I was planning to just live in contact for the rest of my life because I had a great contract with Lincoln Center. And I was like, I had to make a big choice. And I had a I had a baby at home and a, a husband. And I was like and I had to go move up into Toronto for, you know, six months and I needed $12,000 to get out of my contract. And I, we were poor, you know, we're always struggling. I took out my entire savings and bought myself out of that contract. Oh my gosh. And just jumped into the lake. I was like, I'm going for this. I burnt, I'm sure they'll never hire me again at Lincoln center. They'll never, I'm Susan Stroman. I'm sure, you know, she was like, what? I just paid for all this money to get her in. The great thing is my girlfriend that I replaced, her job ended. So she went back into her old spot. I went and did the movie and it was the best thing I've ever done for my career. It was one of the most amazing experiences I've ever had. And I learned so much about film and it, it was magical. And of course, I'm going to just say it. I made a lot more money than $12,000. So, so you it probably was a did okay. <laughs> yeah, I did okay. And you also got great, because I know there's dancers I love that get in film and I can see their face for a second and like, wait, I think I saw them. And then you rewind. You have such great spots. Like you're right next to Richard Gere in a couple of things yeah. and next to Catherine Zeta-Jones yeah. and Cell Block. I mean, I love that I didn't have to search for you. You also yeah. have such a distinct face. Like I look at those old Follies 
promo photos and the flyers or posters that they had. I, I had a little fan crush on you back then. <laughs> <laughs> then I saw you because you you just are so spectacular on stage. The shape of your face and how you use it because you know some all those things going for you, and then you work so great with the camera. Like there's looks that you give to the camera that it's not the pretend acting. It's like, that's that part of you that just that fierceness. So you, it was fun to see you have such great spots and to see, I do have to say, I also came to see Fosse on Broadway. I was so excited to see the show, worked it out with another teacher at the studio. We're going to come see you in the show that we were going to go take class. I go out that morning and I'm going to get bagels for us. And there's nobody on the streets of New York anywhere. I'm like, is something going on? And then the, I saw umbrellas like spiraling up <laughs> to the to, uh, high rises. And I came back and go, we should turn the news on. It was the hurricane. Oh, and yes. so I, we went to class and we were soaking wet and they were closing the class. It's like, no, we came to New York to take class at steps. And we went Broadway dance. Star. I think we could take one class. Then we found out that Fosse was one of the only shows that stayed open. And so I remember the whole audience smelled like wet dog because we had all come in from the rain and we're all sitting there wet and cold. And then it says the understudies. And I'm like, Marianne was one of the, there was, I don't know how much of the cast made it in, but you didn't make it. I guess the subways were flooding in Connecticut or yeah, something. I couldn't, but like, I, couldn't I came to it. see you on Broadway and I was so excited. And then you weren't in the show because of the hurricane. Yes. <laughs> I didn't make it in and the uh, trains flooded. And I, and I, I live out about that time. I lived outside the city. Yeah. I didn't make it in. Is that I'm, just that? Are you on the soundtrack of the Fosse? Yes. Were you the original? Okay. Yes. I'm that the show was amazing. Fosse. I yeah, it was amazing. and that was an, uh, an adventure because and I think that's funny, too, because I was working with Anne Ryan King right on Broadway in Chicago and I auditioned for Fosse with Chet Walker. And then my callback, I came back then like two days later when I had a callback and it was Anne Ryan King. She didn't even tell me. I was like, hi, Annie. I had just danced like <laughs> four with her. Yeah. And she directed and choreographed that. It was just, that was my second time working with her. I just loved working with her. How can I ask how old you were when you did that? The Fosse? Um, you know, that's, I should know my age. Um, I, I would say, um, I, I know I, maybe 48. I don't remember, you know, I got a, I, you know, it's really funny. My entire life is not about like how old I was, what show I was in. But I was right, old. Yeah. I was I was old. I had children. I had children. Well, there wasn't a lot of that cast. And that's what I love of Fosse dancers. It's like you really that shouldn't be put on 20 year olds. Like when I see people doing Fosse, it's like it, they can be amazing dancers. But it, it it's so different. like Alice Yearsley. I don't know if you know her. She. Oh, yeah. oh no, I danced. I danced Jerome Robbins Broadway with Alice. Oh, you that's right. Because she was teaching yeah. Fosse and in she, Seattle. Yeah. And she danced with Bob with Bob Fosse. She was in the cast. I, I actually set. I actually set. Um, here in your studio i with with kirsten and her i set um oh that's right you, oh the trio oh i can't remember the name of the number the number from fossey that yeah that elizabeth parkinson did i set that on her yeah that's right that i mean was, she's, yes. she's a brilliant fossey dancer i'm gonna say something that's really interesting when i worked on fossey verdon the television show i realized that in chicago the girls were young. The only people that were older was Gwen and um, Gwen and and Cheetah Rivera. But the girls were young. And uh. and 
and I think that why they came across like Candy Brown and and Graziella Danielle and all those brilliant dancers is because they were directed by Bob. But they oh, were yeah. young dancers. He loved young women. They were young. It's just oh. a, he found that depth in them. Now, Gwen and Cheetah were not young. Those leads were, no. I think, 45, 55, something like that. They were like 10 years apart. Hmm. But, but the girls were young. But when we did Chicago, we were all older. The lineup on the, the lineup was older. And when we did Fosse, um, and when Annie came in, she brought in some of the, a lot of the older dancers like Valerie Pettiford, myself, um, Jane Lanier, um, Mary McLeod, you know, Lainey Sakakoro. By that time, we were older when we were brought in. You got Just that with the more, down. Yeah, oh. Tim Morgan Green. Yeah. And there are so people that, who actually were very, in, they were influenced, not like third generation of somebody right. teaching Fosse. You guys were the ones yeah. that the, when it yeah. was at its peak. That's what's so beautiful. Is and how, I think what was interesting too is that doing Fosse, I realized what Fosse was. And in Chicago, that was the genius of Anne Ryan King's choreography. I think a lot of people thought that Annie had just watered down Fosse. And I'm like, no, no, no. That's her choreography. Because I thought I was doing Fosse when I was doing Chicago, but I was doing Anne Ryan King's beautiful work. Oh, interesting. It wasn't until I got into Fosse that I was like, okay, this is Fosse. And Fosse was really interesting. He was, it was very physical in the 50s, 60s. He was a very physical dancer. And then by the 70s, when that was when he was working with Gwen. In the 70s, when he was working with Annie, who was a ballet dancer, he stretched it all out. So he had these oh. different styles and it wasn't as physical in the 70s as it was. I mean, it was because dancing was very physical, but it, it's, it, the line became longer. I feel that was just my opinion. Wow. I think of her in all that jazz when she does you gotta oh. change the way, but it's There's so nothing. subtle, but then she whacks those legs. So she does the subtle and the pullback. And I actually took from her several times when she would come to Seattle, she would teach at Cornish and I learned the opening of course line from her and some original Fosse stuff and some of hers. And I think her versatility always gets uh, yeah. probably minimized for that of her as a Fosse dancer, but she was all the, all the styles. She was. She would like want to do something too. different than what you think I'm going to teach today. So she would like purposefully not give us what all of us thought we were signing up yeah. for. Yeah. And Gwen was interesting because when I worked with her, she was, you know, older, much older. And she had a sh kind of a shimmer. And I don't know why she shook. I never knew why. But when she danced, it would stop and she would just like, the room would go still. She was so powerful when she danced. She never shook. She could dance full out. One time we were working on Sing Sing and she went, she was like, come on guys. And they did the full like crazy overhead lift with her. And, and we were like, don't drop her. Don't drop her. She's Gwen <laughs> Burton. But it was, she was a, both Gwen and Annie and, and Cheetah. I got lucky because I also got to work in the visit. Those women, when they kicked it in, they, the rooms the, the air went out of the room when they started dancing there was there's oh just my gosh. yeah you get to witness that there's a guy yeah. I uh, interviewed miles riley who um 
his story about Broadway and he was, he worked in Paris at the Lido de Paris, but he was yeah. talking about going to, it was an audition or rehearsal that he, he said, there's this odd woman who was dressed really kind of flamboyant and strange and had that raspy voice and was telling him something, something about him, you know, to work on or something. And he goes, wow, you sound just like Gwen Verge goes, honey, I am Gwen Burton. <laughs> So I'm like, you were in the presence of Gwen Verdon and didn't know it. So like, I just like these treasures that we no longer have that in this yeah. generation of the Fosse dancer too, is that be able to actually legally teach it because Stanley yeah. Perryman taught off and on at Westlake. I don't know if you work with Stanley, he was Fosse, yeah. but, but there's, the, we're losing these people yeah. and to keep the, to not let it get bastardized or like when people yeah. think they're doing Fosse that really shouldn't be teaching it. Right. It's, does it's not right it's, it does feels like you, it needs to be in the hands of those who worked with Gwen yeah. with Annie with you so also you worked with Jerome we have to wrap this up in a second yeah. I get another one and I was so glad we doing doing a second because there's pearls that I didn't get on the first one but you also yeah. work with Jerome Robbins and I saw yeah. someone who just calls him Jerry like I'm like oh you're calling Jerome Robbins Jerry that feels so familiar yeah. to well, me we, yeah we did call him Jerry when you're working with him I um I got very lucky. I always tell this story, but um, we, I did three months pre-production, um, uh, six months rehearsal and two, two months of, of um, previews. And then we opened Jerome Robbins. We had a cast of 62 and it was one of the most amazing times in my life. And I just want to tell you that I think he changed my life as a dancer. And I think that I would not have had, there's several people in my life, um, Camille Chrysler, Jerome Robbins and Ryan King that I feel like completely changed my approach as the, as the artist. And Jerome definitely was. And one reason why I feel like he did that one thing, he, what he approached everything as an actor, everything he believed dance was, you're just an actor and that you use your body and you have more energy and that dance is internal, not external. And it's your responsibility to move the story forward. And that's when you step on stage, you have to have a history and you have to know what you want. And then, and you want it and then you go get it. And I have to, and dancers that when you work with him, his demanding is very difficult and he was so demanding, but, I was at a perfect age when I worked with them where I wasn't too young to not understand how important it was to go internal, not external. And I was not too old to not think that an old dog can learn new tricks. Mm -hmm. So the truth was that I was able to really learn how to approach my work. And that choreography is just a script and that it's my job to be as honest as I can to pull myself through someone else's steps and be as honest as I can in that environment, in my imagination. He one time said that if he goes to a performance and he saw everything and he was looking at the choreography or listening to the song or, or um, listening to how the story was written, the actor was not doing their job because mm. he was there to follow this journey of the character. And I um, demanded that you work internally right away, that don't wait, you don't learn the choreography and then all of a sudden, 
okay, now I'm going to act with this choreography. No, you learn it, the choreography, just like a cold reading. He would give you the work, the choreography, and it's like a cold reading. You, it's your job to try to discover the internal work of that, those steps. And I think that changed me how I approached every time I learned choreography after that. And so oh, he changed my life. And I got to work with him three times. Just and, amazing. And the biggies. It was, yeah. And I got to work with him later in his life where he's in his seventies. And I think he's, I mean, he's still threw chairs across the room and was very demanding, made me cry and was very hard on everybody. But I, but I think that during the second, then I worked with him on the story of his life for Lincoln Center that never went anywhere. And then I also worked with him. He was the first person that I know that wanted to do West Side Story in an environmental place where it was interactive with the audience. But what happened was after Jerome Robbins, because it costs so much, that they would not give him the money to do the environmental piece. But we worked on it. And I got to play anybody's during that time. And he had his idea was to have like a car drive up and the police car. And then um, all the guys go right over the fence and cross through the audience. And it would have been an amazing West side. And it was, and it was, yeah, he was so, he was a genius, you know, one of our very best choreographers of all time. So I want to do a circle to end us here. Yes. When I met you the very first time I was watching uh, Follies on Broadway and you in West Side Story, I did you have a solo? I don't know if you were Maria. You had a solo, or, there, or maybe I just yeah. thought you had a solo because I had, I, you were the only one I watched. I you slamming to the floor. Yeah, that and you was were the knee so the knee drop, and you were like so passionate, like lot of energy. And then I remember like listening to you in the bathroom when I was staying at your house. And what does that noise? It was you smashing your kneecap back into place <laughs> with a brush. And I was like. That's how our full circle with Karen Schrader and all how we (laughs) remembered how we knew each other. But you, you were a wonderful performer, but that was all external. And then to see you doing Jerome Robbins later in life with all your life history, all this wonderful experience from all these wonderful people. But it'd be interesting, you know, if you had, we can't ever go back to that 20 year old body that we trashed, but to see someone with your maturity life experience to bring that story in a way that's not breaking your kneecaps off. But I mean, it was really fun to watch you. And I was also 20. So I'm like, yes, the purpose of dance is to break your body and just yeah. ah! scare the audience into loving you. Yeah. As opposed to how you, I watch you teach now. You've done some wonderful Zoom classes for us and you're, you've set some pieces for a performing group. And I love watching you watch walk, work with the dancers, but you're not a, a teacher that's going to shame people because a lot of these people will, carry on what was done to them they will now shame their dancers uh, you're not good enough to work here or how how could you leave me because I'm the best you can get or all the things that you were told you're not gonna be a ballet dancer your body's not this and so for you to not put that on because you're exposed to a lot of young dancers who look up to you they've if they didn't know Broadway they've seen you in Chicago you they're moldable and you could totally break a dancer with your words and so I'm just curious, I mean, I do have to so sadly wrap this up, but if right. you have any parting thoughts on that of why you teach the way you do. Well, well one thing I, I try so hard because what I learned is dance is not external, it's internal. And if you really believe that it's 
it's our job to be as honest as we can in other people's words as a performer and other people's lyrics and other people's dance steps, that if they're as honest as they can be in that work, then that's the truth. That's their truth and that's art. So that's all that's demanded. And I, like you said, the last time we had this interview, you said, yeah, it's so interesting when you can see a dancer that turns six times and you feel nothing. Mm -hmm. And then you see a dancer on stage that's barely moving and you feel everything. And yeah. that's our goal, which is so, I'm going to use that word, fucking hard, is mm -hmm. to be as honest as you can. And in life, we're not honest. And so what I try to do, and I try to tell every actor dancer through their career is with every teacher every director every choreographer every book you read every movie you see all those little um um gifts put them in your back pocket mm. you know because there's times where when i was on broadway and i'm doing eight shows a week and I'm beginning to work for the audience or work for a laugh or work for something. And I think I pull out of my back pocket, Gwen Verdon saying, let the audience come to you. Don't work for the audience. It's your job just to be truthful in this environment. Be as truthful as you can in an unbelievable made up environment. And then all of a sudden I pull back. And I think that's what I don't believe dance is a sport. I don't ever want it to be, you're never an athlete. I hate that when they, oh, dancers are athletes. I hate that. No, because athletes go watch football and basketball to, if you love sports, but mm -hmm. go, you go watch dance to feel somebody. And I learned that from Jerome. Amen. That's Amen. the way to end. This is the way we okay. end. Okay. That I is love there's so I love thank Marianne, thank you for doing this again after yes, my goofiness yes. of recording around. I feel like it was like I felt so embarrassed to ask, but I'm so no! happy to have another hour and a half with you. So I will also see you okay. tomorrow because you're gonna be yes. doing that for Melissa. And I love that your heart is here to do that. Dancers giving to dancers. Yeah. All right, you take okay. care, my friend. I'll see you tomorrow. I love you. <laughs> okay, bye-bye. Bye. -bye. bye.